0: Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. The church at Philadelphia was commended by the Lord for its faithfulness to the truth of God. It's hard not to see in this commendation and admonition to the church today to hold to God's truth with the same level of conviction and commitment. Pastor Phil will discuss this today, sharing from Revelation chapter 3.
1: But he goes on then, in fact right here is where the accusation usually comes. But as we have said, there is no accusation against this church. And so the Lord moves right into the exhortation and promise. Verse 9. Indeed, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. As we said in the early years of the Christian church, Most of the persecution came from Jews who considered this group of Christians a cult, a cult of Judaism, because the church rightly so claimed that Judaism was the root and Christianity was the fruit. We speak of Judeo-Christianity, right? It started with men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God gave to them promises, promise of a coming kingdom, coming Messiah, who would not just bless the Jewish people, but would be a blessing to all the families of the earth because Jesus came to die not just for the sins of Jews, but for the sins of the whole world. And of course, as Jesus came, then the Messiah, he told us that Gentiles were welcome, too, in the program of God if they would believe. Now, when the Christian church started and hit the ground running, The Jews, and Paul at one time, Saul of Tarsus, was one of those who was very antagonistic. I mean, he had committed his whole life to Judaism, and now here comes a group that says Judaism is basically over with and has been replaced by Christianity, which is the fulfillment of Judaism. Isn't that wonderful? No, it's not. They didn't take so kindly to that. And so they began to persecute the church. But Jesus called these haters of the gospel, he called them a synagogue of Satan. In other words, they thought they were a synagogue of God doing the work of God in destroying this cult called Christianity, but in reality, they were on the wrong side. They were actually a synagogue of Satan inadvertently trying to destroy the true people of God. It's amazing how people can be deceived and not really even know it. Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 8, he had a heated confrontation with them. And they said some pretty nasty things about his parentage or whatever about his birth that he was a bastard son that was the big thing around that mary had gotten pregnant by some young man who was unknown and said she was pregnant by the holy spirit what a story what a whopper anybody believes that they're crazy so this stigma followed christ his whole life and here it erupts in john eight and they said that he was you know a bastard he was the illegitimate son of mary and he said well you're of your father the devil because your father was a liar from the beginning. You know, you're just showing that you belong in his family. So it was a pretty heated exchange, right? And here he says, I'm going to make those who are the synagogue of Satan, those unbelieving Jews, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Well, this gets into something that Jesus had said earlier in his ministry in Matthew 19, verse 28. He said to his disciples one day, he said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in the life to come, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, this is when he first comes back to establish his millennial kingdom and Israel is going to have to come before him and be judged. He said, You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Someday, unbelieving Israel is going to worship at the church's feet. Now, the word worship there doesn't, is not used in the sense of worship like we give to God. Uh, the word worship, proskuneo in the, in the Greek, was used indiscriminately. It wasn't used of God only. It was used of somebody who was in authority over you, uh, a governor or a king. It was often used of an earthly king, how that you would prostrate yourself before a king who was a superior individual. And someday, unbelieving Israel is going to prostrate themselves before the true church and acknowledge that we are, in fact, the true people of God. Of course, for unbelieving Jews, it will be too late. I mean, they're going to bow the knee to Christ and acknowledge that he is the Messiah and King. But if they wait till they die to do that, they'll be too late. Well, verse 10, very controversial, very controversial. But again in verse 8, the Lord says, I know your works, see, I have set before you, what? An open door, and no one can shut it. Now, last week, based on four different scriptures in the New Testament that we looked at, we saw how that Paul talked about uh, God opening a door for him, or praying, asking the church to pray that God would open a door for Paul. And we looked at the context and we saw that in each of those contexts of those four different verses, it was talking about an open door of opportunity to share the gospel. And I think that's a very valid interpretation. Could very well be exactly what Jesus had in mind here when he said, I have put before you an open door that no one can shut. Here was a church that had a heart for evangelism, for souls. And because they had a heart to reach the lost, God gave them an open door to reach the lost. God will give you the desires of your heart. If you love Him with all your heart and put Him first, He'll give you the desires of your heart. But I'll tell you this. If you really love God with all your heart and put Him first, all the desires of your heart will be things that God Himself delights in. We don't have to ever worry about somebody loving God with all their heart and then going out and wanting to be selfish and wanting to have all kinds of material things and Cadillacs and all these other things. Look, if God is the great desire of your heart, if He's your first love, then believe me, every desire that you have is going to be things that he delights in. So here was a church that had a heart for God, they had a heart for the lost, and God could very well place before them an open door for uh, evangelism and outreach. However, there are some commentators. Donald Gray Barnhouse is one who has written an excellent commentary on Revelation. I'm sure he's not the only one. He sees something much more, something that goes beyond the scope of just outreach. He believes that the open door is talking about a door of deliverance out of the tribulation period, which is coming upon this Christ-rejecting, rebellious world. If that is true, then verse 8 becomes a kind of a segue into verse 10 and the promise that Jesus gives the last day's church that is faithful to him and to his word. Let me put them together. Verse 8 I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, the King James translates it this way, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Notice Jesus doesn't say he will keep them through this hour of trial, but he will keep them what? From. The Greek word is ek, and it means out of or from completely. Hour doesn't mean 60 minutes. It's a period of time in the Greek. Trial is a Greek word that means adversity, trouble, or tribulation. So Jesus promises to keep this church, what church? The last day's true church is what I believe he's saying. From the period of trouble or tribulation that is coming upon what? The whole world. Well, what period of trouble or tribulation is coming upon the whole world? The tribulation period. The tribulation period. In fact, there's a kind of a play on words or verbs here. Because you have kept the word of my patience, Jesus says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial." When Jesus says, because you have kept the word of my patience, listen to me very carefully, he is not saying, because you have been obedient and have endured hard things for me. That's not what he's saying. Vincent, a a Greek scholar, has this to say. He says, not the words which Christ has spoken concerning patience. It's not that the church was following what Jesus said when he said to the church, persevere, be patient. I'm, I'm coming eventually. It wasn't that. Vincent says, it wasn't the words which Christ has spoken concerning patience, but the word of Christ which requires patience to keep it, the gospel, which teaches the need of a patient waiting for Christ. See, the New Testament warns us that in the last days, a great apostasy would take hold in the church. The word apostasy means a falling away from the faith. You say, well, haven't people fallen away from the faith since the very beginning of the church age? That's true. But this is different. This is a wholesale exodus out of the faith. I mean, this is not one here, one there, or a few there who are turning their back on the Lord. We're talking about some kind of massive exodus from biblical truth, and in particular the gospel that's going to take hold of the church in the last days. But listen to me, just because they're falling away from the faith doesn't mean they're necessarily leaving the church. See, that's the problem. What is in view here is a, an apostate church in the last days, a church that is populated with religious unbelievers. Uh, you're going to have some real Christians, no doubt, that are going to be kind of swayed by some of the false teaching, but you're going to see in the last days church the tares becoming more and more clear, and, of course, then the wheat becoming more clear also. The oil and the water, you might say, separating. The true and The false. Separating more and more, where you're going to be able to tell the true from the false more clearly as we approach the return of Christ. And it's just this falling away, this apostasy is going to take hold in the church. Now, Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, he said that in the last days, and he's talking about the church, I believe. In the last days, he said, men would have a form of godliness, he's talking about churchgoers now but would deny the power thereof, right? In the last days, men would have a form of godliness, but would deny the power thereof. What is he talking about? Well, I, I personally think he's talking about the same thing he was talking about in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he said, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes." The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Jesus is commending the Philadelphia church because they were not ashamed of the gospel. They were clinging to it tenaciously and proclaiming it faithfully, unlike many back then and even today who seem to be ashamed of the gospel. What am I talking about? There are many Christian leaders, pastors, evangelists, who I have heard lately saying things like, well, we know that in the liberal church, there's always been many roads that lead to God. So we, we understand that. In, in liberal so-called Christian churches, they, they've always got been ashamed of the gospel, of its ex- exclusivity. They, they, they want a broad way to God. They want uh, all kinds of different faiths to be able to come to God. So they've always had that mindset. I'm talking, though, about the evangelical church, in the last days, as the apostasy begins to take hold, we are seeing more and more Christian leaders. And I'm not saying that all those who espouse this way of thinking are not saved. I'm shocked. I can't even figure it out. How people that have preached the gospel for 50 and 60 years can make statements like this. That Jesus Christ is the only way to God. is the only way to heaven. But if a person's a good Buddhist or a good Hindu or a good Muslim and they've never heard of the name of Jesus Christ, but they're living up to the light that they have. They're living up to uh, their own religious convictions with sincerity, with all their heart. God will account the sincerity of their heart for righteousness, and He will take the atoning blood of, and work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross and apply it to their lives so that God will save them, even if they've never heard of Jesus Christ. Now, that's flat-out heresy. I mean, first of all, If that was true, if that doctrine is true, what was the Great Commission all about? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. If every person who is involved in any kind of pagan religion or or false religious system, if they're just being sincere and trying their best to be a a good Buddhist or a good Hindu or a good Muslim, God will account for sincerity for righteousness and save them. Why, why do we have to go out into all the world? Why did missionaries over the last two thousand years and in the millions die for Christ? If those people were going to be saved by their sincerity, not to mention the fact that we do go on the mission field and we do witness to them for, about Christ and they reject Christ, now they're on their way to hell. So best to leave them alone, right? And let them just go on in their darkness. Because if they're sincere, God will account for righteousness. To me, that is being ashamed of the gospel. You are ashamed of the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way, and because there are very kind and, and good hearted Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and, and people of all different faiths, that you can't come to terms with the fact that God would let them go to hell. We have to try to find some way to include them in salvation. So let's just bend the rules. And it's sad. I want to see Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and all kinds of people of different faiths come get to heaven. But I'm not going to do it by making it seem like they have to do nothing. It just go on in their ignorance. That is not what the Bible teaches. And there's a lot of people, and you, you keep your ears open. You'll hear it all over the place today. Theologians, evangelists who are saying these things on radio. I heard an interview. I mean, with different people. I, I don't want to get into it uh, today. I don't want to start naming names. But they're out there. And it's sad because we're coming to the end when deception is going to be more and more rampant. Now is the time not to capitulate to the darkness. It's the time to stand up and contend earnestly for the faith, which a lot of people in the church are not doing. So if we paraphrase verse 10, we would, it would read this way. Jesus talking, because you have preserved the word of what I have endured, the crucifixion, the resurrection, in other words, the price that Jesus paid to purchase our salvation or the gospel. Because this church was preserving the gospel and was not ashamed of it, Jesus said, I will keep you. Who's he talking to again? The true church alive at the time of the rapture, I believe. I will keep you from a particular period of judgment that is coming upon the whole world to try or to test those who dwell on the earth. Keep is a Greek word that means to guard, to protect, to preserve from. Dwell on the earth. Well, the reference to earth dwellers uh, is a term that shows up ten times in the book of Revelation. It's always used in relation to unbelievers. As opposed to true believers who are called what? Pilgrims? Sojourners? See, there's two groups of people in the world today. There are the earth dwellers, unbelievers who see the earth as their home. This world system is theirs. They live for the world. They live for the pleasures of this life. They build for themselves kingdoms on the earth. They're not living for eternity if they even believe in God at all. And then you have the true born-again people of God who realize this is not our home. We're just passing through. And as we pass through our responsibilities to glorify God, to share the truth with those who are in darkness, and not to become entangled with the cares of this life, because this world is rapidly passing away, as John said, and all the lust of it. So if you try to be a friend of the world, you will not be a friend of God, John says. So we are the pilgrims. Our home is in heaven. We're like, what, um, Christian and uh, faithful in Pilgrim's Progress on their way to the celestial city? I mean, that's who we are. We're on a journey. And we are not to get sidetracked with the cares of this life. We're to stay on our course, keep our eyes on our destination. But I believe that this verse is teaching, Jesus is promising his true church that he is going to spare us. He is going to keep us from the great tribulation that is coming upon the entire world to test or to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, I know, as I said earlier, some people get very upset when people like myself say that because it's like, well, why do you think the church should escape the tribulation period? Well, I like what Henry Morris said. He said post-tribulationists reject this conclusion that Jesus is going to, take us out of here before the great tribula- the, uh, tribulation period starts. Uh, they reject this conclusion. He says, contending there is no reason why Christians in the last generation deserve to escape the great tribulation. The fact is, Morris said, that Christians in every other generation have escaped the great tribulation, so there is no reason why this last generation should be singled off for participation in it. Okay. I like that. Jesus likened this judgment coming upon the whole world, he likened it to the judgment back in Noah's day. Turn to Matthew 24. Of course, the flood was the first time that God brought judgment upon the whole world, right? And he uses that, Jesus does, to kind of liken this coming worldwide judgment. He, uh, he draws some parallels between the two. He said in Matthew 24, verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. was business as usual. The world was completely oblivious to what was coming, just like today. So they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also, will, uh, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Listen, Jesus is comparing the two events. So let's look at them just for a second. In Genesis, the book of Genesis, at the time of the flood, three groups of people were mentioned. Unbelievers who perished in the flood, Right? Noah and his family, who were preserved through the flood, and then Enoch, who was taken to heaven before the flood. The tribulation period is another judgment that is coming upon the whole world. And again, the scriptures talk about three groups in relation to this event unbelievers, who will perish in this judgment, believing Jews, who will be preserved through this judgment, the 144,000 sealed with the mark of God in their foreheads. We'll learn about them shortly. And then the church who will be raptured before the judgment. Now, Enoch represents the church, right? The question is, was Enoch mid-flood or (laughs) post-flood? It was pre-flood. Look, the hour of testing. See, this is a very controversial passage. What do all these things really mean? What does the hour of testing represent? Well, I believe it's a reference to the 70th week of Daniel. What is that? For those of you who are new with us, Daniel was in Babylonian captivity. He read the, the, uh, the book of Jeremiah, the scroll of Jeremiah, and realized the captivity was only going to be 70 years. That's a long time, but they were coming to the end. Daniel knew that soon the captivity was going to be over with. Daniel was a prime minister there in Babylon, and as such, he began to fast and pray to find out if God had any instructions that he needed to follow as the captivity was going to be ending soon. And eventually, God, through an angel, revealed to Daniel one of the most incredible prophecies in all of the Bible. Daniel chapter 9. Give you just a quick summation. God said, Daniel, there is. I have set aside seven, seventy, seven year periods. We, well, we talk about... Uh, the 70th week of Daniel. The Hebrew word is week, but in the Hebrew mind, a week could be a week of days or a week of years. That's how they understood the word week. And from the context, we realize it wasn't 77-day uh, periods. It was 77-year periods. 400, excuse me, 69 of them would be consecutive. They would start when the commandment went forth to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, that happened on March 14th, 445 B.C. And God said from that point, start counting. There's going to be 69 seven-year periods. Well, in the Old Testament, a year was 360 days. If you take 69 times it by 360, you get 173,880 days. You start counting March 14th, 445 B.C., at 173,880 days, brings you out to April 6th, 32 A.D., the day that Jesus wrote into the city of Jerusalem, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the king. But Daniel, the angel told Daniel, but when the Messiah presents himself, he's going to be rejected. In fact, he's going to be killed for a capital offense, but not for himself. In other words, he's innocent. But when he's rejected, and I'm paraphrasing, God's prophetic time clock for the nation of Israel is going to stop. God said there's 70 seven-year periods I have set aside to deal with what? The nation of Israel. 69 have already come and gone. We are in a period where there's one seven-year period left that God has set aside to deal exclusively with Israel. That last seven-year period is going to start, as the angel told Daniel, when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel.
0: You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day.